All right, welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Sunday night. It is April the 5th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Beautiful day in Nashville and pretty much all around the Southeast today. I hope it was great for you wherever you are. We appreciate you watching us live or if you're watching the replay, if you're listening to the podcast, we appreciate that. And by the way, if you are on the YouTube channel, go ahead and subscribe and click the bell for notifications so you know exactly when we go live. It doesn't hurt to click that thumbs up button on the video either. And the Late Kick podcast is available now wherever you get your podcast. If you want a quick link, just look in the show description. If you're watching YouTube, the link is there or just search Late Kick with Josh Pate wherever you download your podcast. We also really love, and we got a lot of those five-star reviews and comments this past week on that platform too. Tonight, we have got a lot to talk about. Yes, it is a jam-packed show, and no, we're not going to talk about viruses or anything political. We're just getting, no, it's a radical concept, but Colin and I were talking before the show, and we think it'll work. We're just going to talk about college football. That's the lane that you trust us to stay in, and that's the lane we're going to stay in. We're going to talk about a very unique, and to me, from the national perspective, an underrated rivalry. We're going to kick off the show with that in just a couple of minutes. I had a lot of you watch our video about Clemson about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago, when we were talking about what it would take for someone to close the gap on them in the Atlantic Coast Conference. And we threw around Georgia Tech, we threw around North Carolina, and a lot of you, you didn't take exception, you actually wanted us to push more the concept of how North Carolina would do it if they were to do it. And this has obviously received a lot of attention now with what Mac Brown tweeted the other night when they were showing on ESPN the replay of the 2005 Rose Bowl. And uh, I got some Q&A tonight, and I'm also going to give you, as we have done the past four or five shows now, Another one of those all-access, trademark, patented, registered now, all-access late kick stories. And to do that, we're not going to go back all that far in time. In fact, we're just going to go back less than a calendar year and as recently as a few months back. So we've got a lot to get to, and we're happy to have you with us. Tonight, I want to get started with this. What do rivalries mean to you? In college football, I think they are part of the fabric of the game. I think they mean more in the college game than the pro game uh, because mainly folks choose to go where they go to college, whereas in the pro game, your average lifespan with a given team, I don't know what it is, one year, two years, three years, free agency is a big deal. Obviously, you work through your rookie contract. You may or may not stay there. So for a lot of reasons, the passion and the intensity with which high-level rivalry games are played at the college level, have a certain uniqueness and a certain romanticism about them that really embodies what college football is all about. I wanted to explain briefly on this show how unique and to me very underrated the Georgia-Auburn rivalry is. It's called the Deep South's oldest rivalry, and it has a lot to do with you maybe, even if you're not a fan of Georgia or Auburn. I'll explain to you how that applies in just a second. It's a very underrated rivalry. It's a regional rivalry. Now, if you're where I'm from, if you're down in the South, it's a pretty big deal the week that it happens. For Georgia and Auburn fans, it's a big deal year-round. You guys talk about it year-round. You live right next to each other. It's a border rivalry. So you guys talk about it. People in Wyoming, they don't really know a whole lot about Georgia-Auburn. People in Tempe, Arizona, they don't really talk about Georgia versus Auburn. They talk about Auburn versus Alabama. Maybe they even talk about Georgia versus Florida, which brings me to my next point. Here's part one of the unique aspect of this rivalry. Neither of these teams would call the other their arch rival. Of course, for Auburn, you've got Alabama. Of course, for Georgia, you've got Florida. And yet, here's where it gets complicated. Now, I want you to follow me here. This is not going to make sense to some of you, especially and even up to and including some Auburn fans. This may not make sense to you. There is a big difference. Here's what I want you to understand. There's a big difference 
in Auburn fans who live in West Alabama, for example, Livingston, Alabama, let's say, versus Auburn fans who live in West Georgia. Auburn's about 30 minutes from the Georgia border. So if you talk about the 185 corridor and the 85 corridor all the way up 75 to Tennessee, you got towns like Columbus, where I'm from. Huge Auburn alumni and fan base there. LaGrange, Noonan, Atlanta has a massive contingency of Auburn alum, Auburn fan. There are a bunch of Auburn folks there, a bunch of orange and blue in Atlanta. And then you go up north, you got Rome, you got all these towns all the way up to Chattanooga. So there are a lot of Auburn folks who live in Georgia they are not going to try and convince you that Georgia is a bigger rival for them than Alabama. But here's what a lot of them will tell you. And this is not something that gets broadcast nationally. And I think this is something that doesn't even make a lot of sense to some of their own brethren who live in the Yellowhammer state of Alabama. There are a lot of Auburn folks who hate Georgia more than they hate Alabama. There are a lot of Auburn folks most recently two and three years ago when Alabama and Georgia played each other once for an SEC championship, once for a national championship, They'll go like this. They'll take a wooden spoon and they'll put it between their teeth and they'll say, yeah, I pull for Alabama. Believe it or not, I wanted saving to beat Curry Smart. Now, what sense does that make? Why in the world would you be pulling for your arch rival? Well, here's what, Auburn, here's what some Auburn fans will tell you. Some Auburn folks will tell you, uh, I despise at a cellular level the University of Alabama, everything they stand for, everything they represent, and I despise at a cellular, molecular level Nick Saban. But here's the bottom line. That guy's great. And Alabama is on an unprecedented run right now. And it's not that we like it, but we have come to terms with it. So that is what it is. And so you go back a couple of years and I tell you, and I'm dead serious because I got a ton of Auburn buddies who will validate this claim, most of whom live either close to or in the state of Georgia, that there were a bunch of Auburn folks pulling for Alabama when they played Georgia. And here was their reasoning. Number one, they have to live around Georgia folks. And I'll give you more on what the rub there, aside from the obvious, is in a second. But the second thing that they said from just a practical standpoint is, well, these two teams are matching up. What does more damage to us if we're Auburn? What does more damage here? Here's what I kept hearing. It made sense the more I thought about it. They said another national championship for Nick Saban in Alabama would mean what to us? In the grand scheme of things, we would hate it. You know, it, it wouldn't be a fun thing for us to watch, but wouldn't really have a whole lot of impact on Auburn. If, if Nick Saban has five championships at Alabama versus four championships at Alabama. But what happens if Kirby Smart at Georgia wins their first national championship in darn near four decades? What does that do to us? Potentially a lot. Auburn heavily recruits the state of Georgia, but here's what they'd be comfortable with. They'd be comfortable, not happy, but comfortable with Bama winning one more. What they can't have is the University of Georgia as a program bypassing them. Now you may think, and even I may think, that Georgia has bypassed Auburn as a program. They don't think that. And if they do believe Georgia's bypassed them, it's still very competitive. Unlike Alabama, Alabama's on a decade plus long run right now, the likes of which the sport may never see again. Hadn't seen it in a long time. Georgia, Certainly, they've been close, but they haven't won a national championship. Georgia's won an SEC championship, but even the same year they won that, Auburn folks will tell you, hey, we smoked them in our own building. Now, Georgia folks will come right back at you and say, what have we won? I think Collins like 12 of the last 15 or 11 of the last 15. Georgia has had the upper hand in this rivalry, but Auburn folks don't look at Georgia as superior to them. They may look at what Alabama's doing right now and even have to admit that's superior. They don't look at Georgia the same way. So 
they wouldn't be comfortable with that. That is, in short, relatively speaking, the explainer as to why maybe a lot of these Auburn folks, depending on where they're situated, would pull for Alabama even over Georgia. Um, Georgia fans, it's a very interesting dynamic in the state of Georgia, where I live. There's a lot of passion. And when Kirby Smart took the job, we talked about this on the last show, there were a lot of factors there uh, where I thought criticism levied towards Mark Richt and the comparison now between Smart and Rick doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. If you missed that, watch the last show and I'll explain it to you. But there is very, very unique sort of set of circumstances in place in the state of Georgia and close to it, right around that Chattahoochee River border, where unless you're on the ground there, you don't really experience it. But if you've been around Auburn folks who live in the state of Georgia and live with Georgia fans, they'll tell you. A lot of them just flat out tell you they hate Georgia more than Alabama. But even the ones who will tell you, yeah, I'm Bama's Bama. They're the big rival. But man, if those two play each other, I got I to gotta admit to you, I pull for Alabama over Georgia. Don't, if they win one more, they win one more. I cannot live with Georgia winning one because here's the fallback. Doesn't matter how many of the last, how many you've won in a rivalry. I mean, it does. But it doesn't matter nearly as much as when an Auburn fan can sit there and grin at you as you explain this to them. And then you look at them and you say, what are you grinning at? What are you grinning for? And then they reach in their back pocket and you know what they pull out. They pull out a national championship from 2010. They pull out a Heisman and they pull out a national championship from 2010. And they lay it on the table and they lean back very arrogantly and they say, where's yours? And then you do what Kirby's doing right now, Surrender Cobra. You don't have one. And that's all that really is standing in that context between you two. And that's what an Auburn fan doesn't want to see you have anytime soon. So that's the explanation. It's a very, very unique rivalry. I'll be honest with you as we transition here. When Smart got to Georgia, I remember having some high school coaches tell me that this is going to impact Auburn in a very negative way. So I said, why? I mean, there, was, there were some obvious reasons, maybe, but I said, why? They said, think about the landscape in the SEC right now, recruiting landscape. Okay, um, Alabama's rolling, so Auburn is certainly not going to dominate in-state with, uh, with the kids that Alabama wants. They're probably not going to dominate there. They need to recruit the state of Georgia heavily, and if a dynamite recruiter comes into Georgia and locks down the state, this is something that people have predicted to happen for 40 years and no one's ever done it. No one locks the state of Georgia down for, again, many reasons, many of which we have discussed in the last month. But there was this fear that all of a sudden Auburn would sort of be out on an island and they wouldn't have you know, from the time they used to be real big in South Florida, but a lot of their staff moved on and they're not quite as strong there anymore. They used to dip their toe heavily into Louisiana and East Texas, but hey, LSU's rolling right now there. So can we go there and depend on that to deliver us a perennial top 10 class? There was this thinking that smart coming to Georgia was going to slam the door on a lot of kids that Auburn used to get out of that 185 and 85 corridor. Again, Columbus, LaGrange, Noonan, Atlanta, and um, I won't say that heads up, Auburn has dominated Georgia, but they've held their own in recruiting. They've done good enough there, and they've done good enough just overall recruiting all of those areas that I just talked about to the point where they're putting together some of their best recruiting classes right now. I mean, Gus Malzahn, a lot of folks talk about how much he's underachieved, and I couldn't disagree more. And maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk about this this coming week. I don't know if we have time. <laughs> yes, I do. We will have time. I don't think he's underachieved at all. I mean, how, how many of these other head coaches have beaten Nick Saban multiple times? And how many people are 
parked in the same state as Nick Saban across the river from Kirby Smart, just up the road from Ed Orgeron and the defending national champion LSU Tigers and recruiting at a top 10 level. Like how many other coaches out there are doing that? How many of them are equipped to do that? I don't know the answer to that. I just know the answer is not very many. Whatever the number is, it's not very many. It's all relative because you and I know if I were to pluck Auburn, grab claw machine time, we're grabbing Auburn and we're... And let's, let's just trade the ACC for a second. Let's negotiate a trade. Auburn and NC State. What's Malzahn doing in the ACC? I'm not telling you he's overtaking Dabo anytime soon, but behind Dabo, behind Clemson, what's Auburn doing in the ACC right now? They're a perennial 10 or 11 win team. You would view him completely different. Nothing changed. All that changed about the man in the program is the geographical fencing. I just put him in a different compound over here. So it's all relative. This underachieving sort of nexus within the SEC universe, the broad brush he gets painted with, it's all relative. And sometimes it's um, relatively wrong. We just mentioned the state of North Carolina. I'm going to go back there. Let's go back there. Why don't we? Uh, If you were watching our show Thursday, and a lot of you were. We had a lot of traffic on the Thursday show. It means that you weren't watching ESPN, at least while we were live, so you may not have known that they were showing a replay of the 2005 Rose Bowl. It was a national championship game. It was Texas versus USC, one of the greatest college football games of all time, with the greatest play-by-play guy, in my humble opinion of all time, Keith Jackson, on the call. And there are a lot of memories from that night. And there's not a lot to do for a lot of folks in the college football world right now. Therefore, Mac Brown included in that world was live tweeting, watching the game, just like pretty much everyone else, including myself was once I went home the other night. And so um, you get to the end of the game and Mac Brown on his like 1100th tweet of the night shoots out the following quote, we did it. We were national champions. We did it at Texas and we can do it at Carolina. We were a top five program here before, and we're headed there now. It's going to happen. A lot of you laugh at the notion, of course, that North Carolina could be elite in college football. A lot of you would laugh at the notion that North Carolina would ever find themselves as a perennial top five contender knocking on the door of college football playoff status. A lot of you laugh at that. A lot of you would go as far as to say it's impossible. I don't care if you laugh about it. I would take exception if you said it's impossible. There's a big difference. There's a big gap between something that's impossible and something that just hasn't been done yet. Nothing's been done until someone does it. And so, you know, I would imagine the same folks that are laughing at this notion probably laughed a decade and a half ago at the concept of Baylor being elite in college football. Well, what happened? They got the right guy in there. And uh, right ended up not being necessarily the term that many would use modern day to describe Art Briles, but for a time there... For a time, Baylor was rolling, and their downfall had, to be honest, very little to do with the football acumen of the coaching staff there, and very little to do with the recruiting job they did, the developing they did. There were some other aspects of that program that were a little shoddy in nature, and so you see the downfall of Baylor. They get Matt Rule in there, so they hit a home run again with a hire so good that they couldn't keep NFL teams from coming and poaching their head coach away. Now, I don't think any NFL teams are coming after Mac Brown anytime soon. What I do think is Mac Brown's got some stuff figured out at North Carolina, and he's right. They did it there before. They had Carolina with, I think there were consecutive double-digit win seasons there. At one point, they were recruiting good. I'll be honest with you, when Butch Davis took the job, I was pretty excited when they hired Davis. Phenomenal recruiter. In the end, 
uh, every aspect of the program didn't get quite to the tier level that it needed to be at in order for them to take the next step, blah, blah, blah. Well, so Mac Brown's in there now and he's saying, hey, what we did at Texas, it's going to happen. We've already done it here and it's going to happen again. Can this happen? My short answer is yes, it can happen. I don't think it's any crazier than what Baylor was able to do. I don't, I don't think it's crazy at all. And I think maybe the inverse of the argument that some people make right now of how the sport has never been more closed off and there's only room for two or three at the big boy table. That's not true. It's not true because seven or eight years ago, Clemson wasn't there. And in fact, I could make the argument, North Carolina is on the precipice. That's a long way to go. So please understand, I'm going to talk really slow here. So even those of you who watch the pad or listen to the podcast in like uh, warp speed, even you guys are going to understand what I'm about to say. I am not comparing North Carolina to Clemson in the sport of football. I'm not doing that. What I'm saying is there are some parallels between the trajectory that North Carolina's program is on, albeit still very early in this staff's tenure, and what Dabo was eventually able to do at Clemson. If the argument is that the head table is only reserved for the elite of the elite and the historic blue blood programs, what's Clemson doing there? Clemson wasn't there a decade ago. What changed? Did they have immunity? Did they get an override, get in free card that they handed out at the door? No. Here's what happened. What happened is they paid their dues. They took some lumps early. But then there was a guy by the name of Deshaun Watson that they recruited out of Gainesville, Georgia. I watched him come in one time and play my alma mater, Harris County High School, and committed a real-life hate crime against them, crime against humanity. And he goes to Clemson. And all of a sudden, Clemson's really good. They got this guy named Deshaun Watson. Watch him. Now, the rest of their roster is not necessarily on par with the big boys. We talked about this some on the other night show. But Deshaun Watson took him to another level because, as I've told you many times, and I firmly believe this, one transcendent quarterback talent is worth 10 other four- and five-star players at other positions. So Watson elevates the play at the quarterback position. Then all of a sudden, other quarterbacks want to come to Clemson. Trevor Lawrence is there now. And then there's this stream of talent that starts coming into Clemson that you could argue was all precipitated by Deshaun Watson showing up on campus. And he didn't just magically show up. They busted their tail on the recruiting trail and got him out of the state of Georgia, one of a number of top high-profile quarterbacks who have either left the state of Georgia out of high school or gone to University of Georgia and transferred out of there. I'm talking about Deshaun Watson. I'm talking about Lawrence. I'm talking about Fields. And so... What does that have to do with North Carolina? Well, look at what North Carolina is doing right now. If we start to put together the blueprint for how they would eventually fulfill this Mac Brown prophecy of being one of the top five to 10 programs in America, is it a long way away from where we sit now? Yeah, it's kind of like that scene in Angels in the Outfield. Dad, what's it gonna take for us to be a family again? From where I'm sitting, the Angels winning the pennant. Well, the Angels won the pennant that year. George Knox did a great managerial job and the Angels, they won the pennant. I don't think any little kid's going to even have to step on the field in Chapel Hill and wave his arms in an angelic fashion for this to happen. They have quarterback figured out. That's first and foremost. They got the coaching staff in place and they've got quarterback figured out. Sam Howell, one of the biggest gets in an otherwise lost recruiting class to maybe national pundits. They finished 30th a couple of years ago on the recruiting trail, uh, and they only had like a few weeks to put together the class, but they were able to get Sam Howell. That guy is now a dark horse Heisman contender on a lot of people's radars, including mine. And not only do they have Howell, who is a true sophomore, with already a year starting experience under his belt, they got Drake May, 
that they flip from Alabama. So there is no certainty ever in recruiting, but you'll notice now they got this kid for at least two more years, and then they got Drake May coming in, just like Clemson was able to do. They lock up the quarterback position. Now, is Sam Howell Deshaun Watson? No, he's not at this point, but he could be great in his own right. Do we know that Drake May is going to be Trevor Lawrence? Of course we don't could be great in his own right. And if they have that position squared away for the next five to seven years, then all of a sudden you look elsewhere and you look at the general trajectory of their overall recruiting. Finished 30th a couple of years ago. I think they finished 19th the year after that. And here, lo and behold, albeit in April, we look ahead to 2021 and they have actually moved up since last week. They're the number three class in the country now. They've got to build more depth. They've got to have more talented depth and I'm not talking about just frontline guys, but to compete at the high levels of the sport like Mac Brown's talking about, you got to have that championship caliber depth. Your twos have to be able to go eight and four in ACC play. The Clemson's could probably do better than that right now. And um, also, I think you got to take another approach from Bedabo Swinney's book and don't worry about the conference you're in. I was on the Carolina message board earlier today and had some really good back and forth with you guys. And someone was talking about how I haven't been necessarily kind to the ACC, but yet they couldn't really take umbrage with it because pretty much criticism of the ACC right now is valid in a lot of ways. If you're pumping the ACC in football right now, you're probably lying on football right now. Not a lot of good to say, but that is both a curse and potentially a blessing because you got an open road to the number two spot in this conference, and then you can work on closing that gap. But all the while, I wouldn't worry about what conference I'm in. You create a standard, and you hold yourself to a standard, and I don't think anything they're doing at Clemson has to do with being the best team in the ACC. I don't think they even worry about it. I think they wake up every morning and know they are, and they worry about being the best they could be at Clemson. Well, that's a model that should be duplicated everywhere. That has really nothing to do with Clemson. That's just a model for success. And a lot of people sold their stock on Matt Brown. When he left Texas, a lot of people sold their stock on him. And when Carolina hired him, I'm not going to be the first to say that I was punching out articles and getting ready to do all kind of podcasts and leading this show with the fact that North Carolina hired Mac Brown. But you see, as I said earlier on um, the board there with the Carolina fans, a lot of folks laughing at Carolina hiring Mac Brown doesn't mean anything to me because a lot of those folks who are chuckling at this are the same folks who were chuckling and maybe even outright slapping their knee and laughing at the concept of, oh, I don't know, LSU taking a flyer on some guy named Ed Orgeron. These people are wrong all the time. I don't care what they're laughing at. What I do care about is Mac Brown and his program are showing a whole lot more life than some programs led by guys who have been around a lot longer than he has in Chapel Hill. That's what I'd be excited about. That's what I am excited about with Carolina. Moving right along, you guys have thoroughly enjoyed the stories that we've been telling, almost as much as I've enjoyed telling them to you. We've been doing something called, it's a really creative name, All Access Stories. We had a focus group, paid them a lot of money, and that's the idea. That's the name that they spit out to us, All Access Stories. So I'm going to tell you one tonight. This one's not that long ago, actually. I had, a, I had some other ones from earlier, but it's a long off season, so we've got time to tell all the stories that we want to. Hey, I'll tell you this as well. You know, at 24-7 Sports, we got a vast network of team insiders. We got accounts and websites, just talked about Carolina, from Alabama to Tennessee to Ohio State. Got a lot of guys that are on the ground, a lot of girls who are on the ground doing a great job covering teams. Um, 
the sourcing that these folks have is second to none. I can tell you from personal experience, the sourcing within the insiders, within this network, I don't just say it caused their sign of my paychecks right now, is second to none. I said that long before I came to work here. Point being, with that sourcing and with that connectivity also comes a lot of really, really good stories. So I'm not so sure that we get into July, get into June, get into you know the time of year where we can be a little bit looser with the formatting here. I'm not so sure that I'm not going to call some of those guys up and say, hey, you want to grant anonymity to whoever you're talking about? Do you want me to modulate your voice? Do you want me to pixelate your face? I don't care. But some of the stories, you know, I was at our publishers conference a few weeks ago, and man, some of the stories, you're sitting there listening, and all the while you're just saying, could I press record? Or could, could you come over? Rusty Manziel actually came over to the studio the next day and talked about Georgia some, but I mean, if I could get some of those stories on air, boy, you guys would lap that stuff up. And hey, by the way, before I forget, speaking of that publisher's conference, um, one of our guys, especially that I got to know really well that weekend, David Johnson from the Ole Miss 24-7 sports account, um, is not doing well. And a lot of you that follow him maybe either on the Ole Miss side or on Facebook, you've seen some of the health updates. So not to go into too much detail because it's none of my business, but a lot of you guys know what's going on. Just keep him in your prayers. Really, really, really good guy. Really close to the program over there, uh, a staple in the Ole Miss community. So I was talking about stories, and I said, you know what, tonight I'm going to pull one out of the bag that's not all that old. So I'm going to admit something to you right off the top that a lot of folks don't admit, but really most people fit this description. We have bias in a lot of cases. And I had bias last year. I was pulling for LSU. Don't care who knows it. In fact, I broadcast it very early on in the spring, actually. Now, let me tell you, I've loved LSU for a long time. The administration there, uh, the sports information department folks, they're always great. They've always been phenomenal to us. They respond right away. I mean, uh, Kent Lowe's worked in their athletic department forever. One of the first times I ever covered an LSU game in Baton Rouge, I went down there without my parking pass, which was 100% on me. And I let Kent know and probably got an email back from him two minutes later. He just sent me to his house. He's never met me before. He just sent me to his house. He said, go to this address, walk around to the back, and on the back porch, there'll be a parking pass waiting for you. I could have been anyone. I, I watched Road to Perdition last night. I could have been one of those guys. You never know who I could have been, but they're very, very nice. And so here's some backstory. Spring and summer of 2019, leading up to this last football season, I was high on LSU. I mean, really, really high on them. I thought that Everything that you were hearing about this offensive transition and the shift in philosophy, I bought it. Um, I had a little cheat sheet of knowledge of information from some people close to that program who had previously been skeptics of the talk every offseason about changing the offense. The same ones who used to tell me, don't buy this garbage, were bathing in the Kool-Aid. And they were telling me, it's real this time. It's real. And so I made no bones about the fact that if it's real, I know the talent they have. I think they got a really good quarterback in Joe Burrow. Just the quarterback and the talent had been underutilized and improperly leveraged. So, I mean, if we're going to do that, then what stands between them and competing with Alabama? So I vocalized that really early on. A lot of people down there heard it. And whereas I was in Columbus, Georgia, and our following was mainly Auburn, Alabama, and Georgia folks, the LSU fan base just ate up all our content. They were our biggest viewership base of any program. And I'd never lived in Louisiana. I've not covered sports within a 600-mile radius of Baton Rouge. And yet, 
they were really, really loyal to us. And so I developed a connection with LSU last year, the likes of which I probably hadn't had before last season. So the LSU fans just flooded the channel. We get to Hoover for SEC media days. All their media guys are talking to me about how, you know, there, there's been some buzz down there about your channel. I know it's brand new. We were doing late kick independently this time last year. I wasn't even with 24-7 yet. And yet we had generated so much traction down there that we get to Hoover for SEC media days and some of their folks had taken notice. And then we go into fall camp and the videos are just out of this world. The traffic's phenomenal. And then we go down to Baton Rouge early in the season for LSU versus Auburn. This is point one of the three points that I want to make that I don't think I've talked about publicly a whole lot as to why I had such bias towards well, in favor of, I guess, LSU last year. We go down there, and keep in mind, I've only been doing the show a few months, and we are in that venue, we're walking around pregame. We probably had conservatively two dozen people, very conservative number there, probably two dozen fans introduce themselves, talk about how much they love the show, and I'd done news for a long time. You don't ever get recognized. Maybe at high school football games, you're not getting recognized at college football games. And all of a sudden, down in Louisiana, 600 miles from where I broadcast the show, you got folks recognizing you, which was pretty surreal to me, especially for the show to be as new as it was. So that was early in the year. And then, of course, we talked about this game the other night. LSU goes on to beat Auburn. Close game, but LSU goes on to beat Auburn. In Tuscaloosa, a few weeks later, this one was wild. So it was a morning where we had to get there very early. President's in town, Secret Service. We need to be in several hours before kickoff. And so it's LSU versus Alabama day. It's, the, it's my circle game every year on the SEC calendar. And so I'm in town already. And I had to go run an errand over at a FedEx office. A couple of folks in the chat may know why. But I'm on my way back. We're Ubering back from the FedEx office there on McFarland Boulevard. Hey, Emily on McFarland Boulevard. We're headed back to Bryant-Denny Stadium and my phone just starts blowing up, which is not all that atypical on a game day. And I look and it's all these folks asking, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? A bunch of Twitter links. And so I open, I click on the Twitter link and LSU's video department, they did as good, if not a better job than the football team did last year. They owned the space. Like their digital footprint exploded last year because their video department uh, was putting out such great next level content and their game day hype videos. You guys know I'm not a big hype video guy. I was for this one though, because what they did was they took a mashup of people in the national media sphere talking about how big LSU versus Alabama was. And there were guys from ESPN on there. There were guys from CBS Sports on there. Uh, there would be guys from all the national outfits and right there parked in the middle of that montage of otherwise national media outfits were clips from our little independent show being broadcast out of a news studio down in Columbus, Georgia. Never met the guys, never spoken to them about it. They just put us in there, which was part two of letting me know how much traction we had generated in Louisiana and with LSU folks. Not to mention our inbox had been flooded pretty much every week from LSU folks, and I could see the traffic. And so that was awesome. So I was on cloud nine long before we went into the stadium. We witness LSU win that game. I go into Orgeron's post-game press conference, and I'm standing there. It's a, it's a road locker room. You know the walls are very thin. It's a very small space. And the videos that eventually got leaked out of Ed Orgeron, you know, acting like an animal, essentially, inside the, I say that in the most complimentary of ways, inside the LSU locker room, I could hear it. Long before the video came out, I was kind of leaned on the wall. I could hear every word 
Well, I could hear every sound. Some of the words could quite make out, and that goes up into it, including when I saw the video, but I could hear it. It was the same scene when they beat Auburn the year before. He doesn't hold back in the locker room, nor should he. You, you win the game, you earn the right. That's fine. And so then, a couple of months down the road, we go to New Orleans for the national championship game. And we're standing there in the freight tunnel and entrance where the buses arrive at the Superdome. And I'm standing there with a bunch of folks. And Vince Vaughn comes in. Vince Vaughn, uh, he's around LSU a lot. So the video you're watching right now, if you're watching YouTube, go down that tunnel a little ways. And that's where the teams actually come in off their buses. So Vince Vaughn, there were a lot of celebrities there that night. He was one of them. And so we're standing there. Vince Vaughn walks in and he stands a couple of feet to my right. And he's going to wait for LSU's team to show up. And so a lot of folks obviously recognize Vince Vaughn and they're asking for pictures and autographs and everything. And so I'm not paying attention. In my peripheral left, someone walks up and I hear, oh man, bro, can I get a picture with you? Can I get a picture with you? And so I figure, oh, another, another Vince Vaughn fan here. I mean, I was having to hold back from asking to take a picture myself, but to this day, I've never asked a grown man for an autograph or a picture. So I, that streak is still alive. And then the guy asks again, and I look over because one of my buddies is nudging me in the ribs, and he's not asking for Vince Vaughn's picture. He's asking for my picture. Who was this? Well, it was Cliff Crooms. A lot of you guys in LSU will know that name. He's the assistant band director, I believe, down there. And he couldn't care less about Vince Vaughn. He's asking to take a picture with me. Half my family does not want to take a picture with me, so I, I want to talk to him because I got a lot of questions about which songs they are and aren't allowed to play think you know what I'm talking about if I haven't been unclear. And he's talking about how all of it, man, we love watching the show. We've loved the content all year. And I um, am again, pre-game, before kickoff has even happened. We're two hours away from kickoff, already on cloud nine. Second LSU game, really the third LSU game in that season where my day was made before the game even started. So if you want to know why I tend to show a little favoritism towards LSU, and if you want to know why you sense a little purple and gold bias, I'm not hiding it from you. It's there. LSU was really good for us. They were really good to us last year. And so I'm in no hurry to see them fall off any cliff. But those are just three stories. I don't think I've told any of them really on air here or at our previous stop. Um, I just wanted to share those tonight because it was a really, really special year. It was a special year for LSU last year, but covering them, it was really special for totally different reasons for us. And that was, man, what a ride that was. That was an incredible night in New Orleans and it was an incredible season for LSU. All right, I told you that I was gonna do some Q&A to close the show and I'm gonna do Q&A. Uh, now, there was a lot of debate, really in my own head, in the control room here with Colin before the show went on the air, because I, as I tell you many times, I'm from central Georgia. So I think a person by the name of Jean-Simon Carrier has asked us a question, but I'm telling you where I'm from, this name is pronounced Jean Simon Carrier. So JSC asks... Do you see any SEC coaches out there that are great recruiters, but not great X's and O guys? I am not going to question the concept that, relatively speaking, there are probably some head coaches in this conference that recruit well that may not be quite on par with some of their peers when it comes to either in-game strategery or concept or philosophy or outright play calling and play design. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Maybe a lot of you are on a higher level intellectually than me. That's not out of the realm of possibility. I'm 
not qualified to differentiate that watching either standing on a sideline or watching on a TV on Saturday. Because here's what I'm pretty confident in. Now, I'm not saying that this person is suggesting this. A lot of people say this about Kirby Smart. A lot of people say Kirby Smart's a great recruiter. X's knows ah, he's average. How do you know? And here's my question. If I were to convince Kirby, Kirby, let's get a charity event together wherein you sit down face-to-face with any fan who questions your X's and O acumen, and you guys just do a little chalk talk session, that guy in 10 seconds would make your head spin. That guy would make your head spin. Talking about actual football, actual defensive calls and checks, and the difference between all the concepts that they implement, he would make your head spin. I ask this, could you tell the difference on TV between a poorly executed play and a poorly called play, the, the, the question play calling crowd, uh, they're on social media in abundance every Saturday after a game ends. Folks talking about play calling, play calling. I'm not here to tell you that coaches never make bad play calls. I'm telling you I would bet a lot of money if you're some of the folks that I listen to and sit there in silence, you have no clue what goes into a play call in a football game. You have no clue. I don't either. I don't, I'm tell, but I'm telling you I don't. A lot of you can't cross that bridge. And so instead of saying, hey, we got, we got players poorly executing plays, we got coaches calling bad plays, what was the play call? For the, for the questions play calling crowd, what was the play call? What should it have been? What was it? Do you have any idea how many checks there are? Do you have any idea how many tiers there are to a play call? Do you, do you understand? Just from a blocking alone, offensively, a blocking standpoint. Do you understand what it takes to design a play and how many different parts have to move in unison for a play to be executed correctly, even if it's perfectly drawn up? You can spot the difference between a right guard who who doesn't pull at the right angle versus a coach who called the wrong play. You can do that. I can't do that. Soapbox over. Jordan-Hare Stadium was not in your top five in your discussion of favorite SEC stadiums the other night. Why is that? Yeah, this is Braden Boutwell. He has actually asked a lot of good questions. I'm going to hit another one from him in a second. I didn't mention Jordan-Hare. I mentioned them. I didn't put them in the top five. I didn't put Neyland in the top five, and I didn't put the Swamp in the top five. And we were talking, for those of you who missed the show, about our favorite, my favorite SEC stadiums to cover games in. That's the optimum word, cover. I wasn't talking about game day atmosphere because, see, I put Williams-Brice Stadium as my number five. I've covered games at all these stadiums, but I was talking about the experience I have. If I were sitting in the stands, like I was at the Auburn at Florida game last year. That was as electric an atmosphere as I experienced all year last year. So if we're talking game day atmosphere and game day atmosphere alone in stadium atmosphere, no, I'm not keeping Jordan-Hare Stadium out of my top five. I'm not keeping Florida out of my top five. And when Tennessee's good, I'm not keeping Neyland out of my top five. There were other factors in play. So I'm not alone here. If you talk to some of the folks who have covered games at Auburn, there are some upgrades they would like to see be made. But I love the folks at Auburn, so it's not their job. It's not like it's their eight-figure check to write, nor is it mine. So my top five was my top five. Uh, Braden also asked, Now, make sense of this one for me. We're going Kirby again. Does Kirby Smart have to make the college football playoff in 2020? No. Nope. Is there anyone out there who's saying yes? And if there is someone out there who's saying, yeah, Kirby Smart has to make the college football playoff in 2020, what if he doesn't? You firing him? 
What if are are you even heavily criticizing? What if he doesn't make the playoff in 2020? I'm still trying to figure that one out. Moving on. College Football Media, who is very active on our channel, asks, can you comment on what Mark Mangino was able to accomplish at Kansas? What does it mean possibly for Les Miles? Colin and I were actually talking about this, ironically enough, before the show. The 2007 season, I believe it was, where you had, I mean, West Virginia and Missouri almost played for national championship, just to give you an idea of what kind of season that was. I think South Florida, Jim Levitt has South Florida ranked. Kansas under Mark Mangino, Todd Reesing was the quarterback there at the time. They were up in the top 10, up in the top five, I believe, at one point. Which shows you, of course, it could be done there. Um, you know, factors have changed. The dynamics of the sport have changed. I believe that Kansas is just as capable of getting to an eight or nine win level as, you know, Iowa State has accomplished it. Why couldn't Kansas accomplish it? Now, there are several reasons. They've been horrible in football for a long, long time. But the question here is not, are they equipped now to do it? It's like, could Les Miles possibly accomplish something similar. Sure, he could. It would be great for marketing. I think Miles has already done a pretty good job of marketing the program. I mean, how many times, if you're watching, I'm normally on the road on a Saturday, but if you're at home and you turn on game day, how many times can you justify mentioning Kansas football right now, if not to justify it by saying, well, we're going to talk about it in the context of what Les Miles has been doing with the program. And that's what you have to do. To make the needle move until you start winning games, that's how you have to get your program on the radar. I think Miles has done a good job of that so far. Now the question becomes, can they win games? And your guess is as good as mine with can they win enough games to matter. 4G asks, FSU, they're going to have success in 2020. Success for Florida State this year would be a top seven recruiting class. They landed two quarterbacks this last cycle. I think it is for me now. I'm not saying for Florida State fans. For me in regard to Florida State, this is a throwaway year. They could go six and seven. They could go nine and three. It's not going to make much difference to me other than the bowl game you go to, or if you go to a bowl game with nine and three versus six and seven. I care about your recruiting class because there is a significant override that has to happen in your program culturally and roster-wise. You, you, you know that as well as I do. That's what I care about. Success for Florida State would be seeing incremental. Are you better at the end of the year than you were at the beginning? And are you putting together a really, really good recruiting class? Because if Mike Norvell's staff is recruiting at a high level after their first full recruiting cycle, I got a lot more confidence in them moving forward. College Football Jared asks, why is there still doubt in Mac Jones and his ability to be an elite quarterback? I think probably the answer is the sample size is not big enough there. Uh, there's also this paralysis by talent sort of narrative that a lot of people throw out where if you play with a lot of really good receivers and really good offensive linemen and really good running backs, they have a hard time calling you elite. Uh, I don't know why, nor would I care. I'd much rather play with great talent and have you question my ability than me be elite and go 7-5 and five every year and get crucified on Saturday. But the thing with Mac Jones is going to be, he's going to be compared to the last guy who was there, who was pretty good. His name was Tonga Vailoa. He's going to the league now. And he's also going to have Bryce Young's name breathing down his neck, even if Bryce Young isn't breathing down his neck, literally. And I'm a believer in Bryce Young, by the way. But I just think a lot of, well, there's a third compartment of people here too who just want to see Alabama lose. And so it's not so much that if their money was on the line, they would predict Mac Jones to fail. But as long as they're just running their mouth with no financial consequence and nothing's on the line for them, they're happy to say he's going to fail because they hope he fails. 
I mean, that's the same way it works in the NFL with the Patriots all the time. A lot of folks hate them, so they predict them to lose. But if I were to tell them, how much money you got in your wallet? All of a sudden, they become a lot more sheepish and hesitant. Just like I think if there were some paychecks on the line, a lot more people would probably back away from that, you know, Mac Jones is a 9-3 and three kind of quarterback. I think Mac Jones is a really good quarterback. I'll give you a comparison someone on the Alabama staff gave me. They think he's better than A.J. McCarron. They don't think he's better than Tua Tonga-Vailoa. They think he's a better talent and a better quarterback than A.J. McCarron, who until Tonga-Vailoa arrived, you could argue, had been the best quarterback in the Nick Saban era. You could argue that. So, I mean, if you're giving me that with all the talent they have and the offensive skill, I would be probably pretty comfortable going to battle with him on Saturday. That's just me. We got a lot of people uh, in the chat right now, a lot of people watching live. If you haven't, please click that thumbs up button for us. Give us a quick like. We're going to be back here Thursday for another live edition, and we will have probably another chance for Q&A because I got in the chat earlier tonight right before we went on air and tossed some chum in the water and said, hey, Q&A, Q&A, got a little bit, got a few more slots left, and a lot of you jumped on that. So we'll do some more Q&A, because to be honest with you, sometimes you guys come up with better questions than I come up with, and it's your show anyway, it's not my show, so why not let you drive it? Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already, and click the bell for notifications. That bell lets you know anytime we post something and anytime we go live, so you don't have to rely on your memory. A lot going on these days. We appreciate you joining us wherever you have been and however you have listened. The Late Kick Podcast is another very viable option for you to listen to us. Or if you just want to listen to the replay without having to look at me, that's also a viable solution. We will be back here Thursday for Colin, for Aaron. I'm Josh Pate. We'll see you then. Until then, this has been The Late Kick. Have a great week.